0: Birdnote presents it's been almost four years since i traveled to standing rock to cover the protests against the dakota access pipeline which you heard about in the first episode of this show standing rock made me question the role of journalism I came away from that experience feeling like no amount of reporting on the potential risks, violations, or climate implications of that pipeline would have prevented it from being built. It was a political football, not a decision based on facts or public will. The Obama administration halted it, the Trump administration approved it, and the court battle has been dragging on ever since. Standing Rock shook my belief that good journalism could change things. You know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, as the saying goes. But there was another learning for me at Standing Rock. A moment that has stuck with me ever since. That changed the way I do journalism, actually. The way I listen. I traveled to Standing Rock with Ace Baker. He's a member of the Standing Rock Lakota Sioux who lives in Washington State. He's married to a woman who is a member of the Swinomish tribe of Western Washington. And I had been covering the Swinomish tribe as part of my work for public radio in Seattle. So I reached out to my contacts there to see if there were any local connections to what was happening at Standing Rock. And that's how I met Ace. Ace. I camped with Ace and his family at Standing Rock, and his father and brothers and nephews and nieces were all around, just visiting, riding horses, lighting off fireworks, and participating in the protests and ceremonies that were happening there. I hadn't talked to Ace since leaving North Dakota, so I called him up. I wanted to see if he remembered our time together the way I do. Oh, for sure. How are you how are you living on the on the west side these days? It's been good. It's been hectic, but yeah. You know, it is what it is. Your dad's Standing Rock had a big impact on Ace, too. What did you think about all the people who came to support the Standing Rock Lakota? I thought it was amazing. Yeah. You know,
1: I had never seen some, something like that. You yeah, I've never been a part of something like that, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't know too many people who have. Those There were people from from every tribe were out there. People from every walk of life were out there. And uh, it was an, certainly an amazing time. Uh, but it was... All for not, I guess, maybe. It uh, depends how yeah. you look at it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, sure, there's some good that came out of it. Um, I mean, I just graduated in June uh, from UW with my bachelor's in environmental studies. Wow. Now I'm done.
0: That's awesome. That's so awesome. Well, I'm not done.
1: done. I started my master's. Yeah, I started my master's program uh, on Monday.
0: You're doing a master's too?
1: Yeah, the University of Oklahoma. Uh, oh, wow. It's a master's in uh, hydrology, water management.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: So there's still, a, I'm hopeful that there's, you know, I'm not the only one. I know that for a fact that's going to school, and uh, that's a big tool, and, and everybody's toolbox, you know, education. You can't go up against these guys and fight, you know, not know what you're fighting about.
0: Yeah. the Dakota Access Pipeline route goes underneath the Missouri River, and the Standing Rock Lakota and others fear that if it leaks, oil will contaminate downstream water supplies. The protest camp I visited with Ace was called Ocheti Shacoin, and it was not far from where the Cannonball and Missouri Rivers meet. I still remember that ride we took along the Cannonball River, speaking of hydrology. and um, Oh, yeah. Was that one of your dad's horses that we rode? It sure was.
1: That yeah. was Hidalgo. Yeah, The one with the big cut on his, his front there.
0: And one blue eye, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that'll go.
0: We could see um, where the pipeline was going to go underneath, I think from where we rode yeah. along the cannonball. Yeah. I remember um, hanging out around the campfire with your family and just listening to stories and jokes and sitting, <laughs> sitting in that freezing cold for hours. <laughs> oh. I think... Um...
1: When was, when did we go? That was in November. In November, right, yeah.
0: Election. Yep.
1: Oh, it was so cold.
0: The big learning moment for me at Standing Rock happened on one of those nights in camp, and I cringe a little bit when I think about it now. There were six or seven of us sitting around the campfire. Ace's dad was there and a few of his brothers. Some other folks stopped by here and there to visit and listen to the stories that were being told. Hidalgo and a few other horses were tied up to an old trailer park nearby, munching on hay. And I had my recording kit around my neck and my headphones were on. I was there as a journalist, covering the protest. I was gathering tape, asking questions, making sure I got everyone's names, where they were from. Just trying to do my job, right? But I was so tone-deaf. I showed up and expected people to answer my questions instead of just being quiet and observing, just really listening to the people I was there to record. I, I wanted to ask Ace if you remember, um, did I interrupt people around the campfire? <laughs> I feel like I was trying to conduct interviews when people were talking and telling stories, and I have, I have like a little bit yeah. of embarrassment about that.
1: Oh, no. No, it's a, uh, I think... Uh... For us, it's always uh, in a traditional way. It takes uh, patience to speak and to listen. In uh, other cultures, you know, there's a lot of back and forth, um, and that's just a you know um, more of a, a societal type of thing. Like uh Lakota society, that's how we talk. You know, we talk, we listen, we understand that if I'm sitting here listening. To my elder or somebody uh, telling a story, I know there's going to be breaks in that story. And if I'm listening, I can tell when they're going to be and when that they're thinking. I can see, okay, somebody's telling the story right now. I don't want to just interject. You know, I don't think it hurt anybody's feelings. I mean, I remember it, but it was not something I was, I just chalked it up to you being, you know, you're not from... Um, Rock, so how would you know?
0: Well I, I appreciated you I think you took me aside in a really kind way and sort of maybe it was the next day even, but just kind of I learned a lot from that experience that even the, the way that I speak was out of out of whack with the way the people around the campfire that night were speaking.
1: No, yeah. yeah, no, it was, it was not a big deal. I mean, I'm glad you took something away um, in the future might do an interview with some natives at some point, and you, you might remember that.
0: I'm Ashley Ahern, and this is Grouse, a show about the most controversial bird in the West and what it's taught me about hope, compromise, and life in rural America. I've made my living with my ears. So it was a big lesson for me at Standing Rock to realize I wasn't as good of a listener as I thought I was, and that there are other ways of listening and gathering information that could make me a better journalist. In my work covering science and the environment, I've always tried to use data and peer-reviewed research to shed light on complicated issues. And that's how I approached the sage-grouse story. The birds are declining, and we can document that and study that, right? But I'm learning that the story of the sage grouse is more than data and research. And in all the back and forth between scientists, environmentalists, policymakers, around what to do about this troubled bird, there's a part of this story that is often overlooked. This bird is part of the cultural and spiritual roots of many indigenous people in the West.
2: And like me, I'm a lifer here in Oregon.
0: Wilson Wewa is a northern Paiute elder who lives on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation in north central Oregon. I wasn't able to visit him in person because the reservation was closed to outsiders because of COVID-19, but Wilson went to the studios of KWSO radio on the reservation so we could record. The Paiute, Wasco, and Warm Springs tribes share the reservation, which was created in 1855. Wilson is the last fluent speaker of the northern Paiute language on the Warm Springs reservation. Indigenous nations in this region have many names for the bird,
2: prairie chicken, sage hen.
0: We call them Huzi
2: in Paiute. And there were a lot of areas that supported sage hen habitat. And our people had a name for for them because they were used as a food. And so it was in such abundance that uh, our people were able to use it as, as a part of our, our diet for tens of thousands of years. And when cattle ranching started in these areas, fences went up. And that affected the food migration routes of our people. And in some cases, um, it affected... The habitat of the sage hens, because mm. they are a partic— at least in my view, they are a particular animal that um, thrives on their isolation. And so, if they don't have the right kind of environment, they will disappear.
0: And maybe this is a a silly question about Wilson, but I wondered if you remember the first time you saw a sage grouse as a as a small child, maybe.
2: The first time I seen this, um, uh, who'd see it? it was in a springtime down by Burns, Oregon. My grandparents have always valued used to value going and collecting our foods um, down in that area, and we went down there, and we would stay out in the desert in, um, wall tents made out of canvas, and we used to, uh, fill up those five-gallon tin cans with water and stay out in the desert while we were gathering the root foods, and one time my grandpa and I went to get some water from the spring, and he heard, um, We heard that fluttering sound, popping, kind of like a popping noise. And as a little boy of about five or six years old, I got scared. I didn't know what it was because I had never heard that before. And my grandpa recognized it, and so he stopped everything that we were doing, and he kind of zeroed in. On where it was coming from and 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 he told me to be quiet and follow him and we went uh, through some somewhat high sea well I was little I don't it was probably short sagebrush Mm -hmm. but to me Mm -hmm. as a little boy it kind of seemed tall but we went through that sagebrush and then we got to a place where we had a good vantage point and we seen the um, sage hens doing their dance On um, learning that that's their mating ritual uh, for vying for the hens, when they puff up their puff up their breasts and they open up their fan tail um, and put their wings out to the side and then shimmy around on the ground um, in a threatening manner to any um, suitors that are out there. So. Now I look at that experience as, uh, well, 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 for me, it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and it's never left my mind. It's something that uh, I think if anybody saw it, it would never leave your mind. It would give you a new appreciation for the life that does continue to exist in the wild places of America.
0: Wilson is an elder himself now, but he learned stories and legends of the sage grouse from his grandparents and other elders in his community. So at the end of our interview, I asked him if he would share one. This is an ancient story from the Wasco people who share the Warm Springs Reservation, and it's accompanied by a traditional dance.
2: Before humankind was put on this world, there was a lady that lost her husband. And she was so overwhelmed with grief that her children and her relatives and her friends could not console her in any way. And she went out into the desert all by herself. The pain that she was carrying with the loss of her mate. And she cried and cried, so much um, pain in her cry, that nobody knew the grief that she was going through. And while she was out there by herself, she heard a noise. And she regained her composure a little enough to go investigate what she was hearing. And she went over a little rise and she looked, and there they were the prairie chickens. They were dancing. were rejoicing they were having a fun time and they were singing a song and when they'd end the song they would open up their wings and, and give a whoop or a holler of their joy and they noticed her watching them and the sage hen talked to her that she should not grieve uncontrollably the way she was doing, that our grief is not good for us when it makes us sick, and that the sage hens would give her the song to sing and to remind herself that life goes on, And so they taught her the song that she sang, and she found comfort in the song. She found comfort in the teaching that the sage hens gave to her. And when she came back to her village, she brought the song and she brought the dance, and she taught the people. And that song and that dance became a teaching to all later people from that time that we can't let grief overtake us forever. And we teach our children the story today because it's true that you can't live in grief forever, that in doing so you destroy your own life, and sometimes you destroy the lives of those people that love you. So that's what the song and the dance teach our people. And when we sing it, the beginning of the song starts out slowly. And then, uh, then the drum, they hit the drum and the tempo of the song picks up and it's more joyous. And at the end of the song, everybody throws their hands up in the air and spins in a circle and all shouts with uh, happiness. And um, it's a reminder to us of the teaching that was brought to us way back in the time when the animals could talk to the people we are still connected to the plants, to the earth, to the water, to the animals. And more importantly, we're, in, we're connected to one another as human beings on this world. And today, as um, witnessed by the number of psychiatrists and psychologists, that have practices around the world. We don't know how to deal with grief. So we have to learn how to become human again and recognize that we are not all-knowing and that we can continue to learn from nature just the way the lady did. And when we learn that way, we can be better off for it.
0: Thank you to Wilson Wiwa and to Sue Matters and KWSO Radio on the Warm Springs Reservation for connecting me with Wilson and recording this interview in their studios. Next episode, we're heading to Wyoming, one of the last strongholds of sage grouse in the West and a hotspot for oil and natural gas extraction too. Uh,
2: when you turn on your gas stove, uh, you know, on the East Coast or West Coast, uh, what you're doing is, is providing uh, a job to a very hardworking individual in Wyoming uh, in remarkably difficult uh, conditions.
0: Grouse is edited by Whitney Henry Lester. Sound designed by Liza Yeager. The show was produced in partnership with Birdnote Presents and was made possible with support from Jim and Beerta Faulkner. I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks for listening.